You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Um, sprinkled through much of what we looked at so far in the book of 1 Samuel um, is how are we supposed to think about, react, respond as the people of God when faced with an external enemy like the Philistines? Um, how are we to think about um, the, the, the openly word of God denying people um, who besiege the church, besiege God's people, um, and are at war with the true worship of the triune God. And that is far simpler than what we're going to start to look at this week, and we'll continue for a number of weeks as we continue through um, Saul and David's relationship. You see, the reality is, is that um, our enemy, Satan, is at work around us, and he's at work in two fundamental ways, and by far the gravest danger to you and to me and to what God wants to do in our church and through our church is not an external enemy. It is instead the, the divisiveness, the, the, the tearing apart of the fabric of the, the, um, and the unity of God's people by envy. At the heart of, of what we begin to see develop, um, what ultimately is going to tear Saul's family apart, um, it's going to tear asunder this united kingdom um, that we see right now in 1 Samuel, is ultimately envy. Um, Rene Girard has pointed out that the Ten Commandments end with um, the, the, the command against envy, against coveting your neighbor's life, his things, his wife. Um, all the things that God would give him. And that this is, in fact, a, a command that, that is linked to the first command. And that any time you violate the first command to worship any other God besides God, um, the very first sign of it to creep up in any life together is envy. And as the first command focuses on our attention, our affections for our devotion and loyalties to God, the final commandment is actually um, what holds the, 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 a community together and what can tear a community apart. And so I want to look at 1 Samuel 18. We're going to look at um, more than just the text that was read for us today. Um, and, uh, and I want you to see that at the heart of this text um, is not primarily a contrast between David and Saul, but primarily at the heart of this text is a contrast of different kinds of responses to the blessing of God on another. Let's say that again. The main thing to observe in this text, the question that it raises for us, is when you see the blessing of God upon another person. When you see the blessing of God upon another church. When you see the blessing of God upon a coworker or a neighbor, or a spouse, or a son? What is your response? And this text is going to lay out for us several different responses. And we're going to get into detail on how Saul responds to David. But first, we're going to look at three different responses that were good and right, and we should try to cultivate in our own lives when we see what's going on. Uh, but to catch you up again, last week we had David fighting Goliath, fun text, fighting Philistines, 
you're fighting giant serpent-like Philistines, there's only one thing to do, and that is to throw rocks at them. Um, This week, uh, we move beyond that and now turn inward on the community itself. Um, We ended last week with Saul and David interacting, talking, um, David telling Saul who his father is. Um, And the very first thing that pops up in chapter 18 is that Jonathan, it says in verse 1, as soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Um, Lots of preachers in the last 10 years have spent Lots and lots of time trying to either explain that this is some sort of strange homoerotic relationship or explain a way that it's not, um, or, or, or explain why it's not. Um, it's not for a number of reasons um, that I won't go into other than to say that there's nothing in this text um, that would defend that. Um, and, and two, the main point of this is not to focus on David and Jonathan's relationship. It's to focus specifically on Jonathan's response to what is clearly the hand of God and the spirit of God with David. And his response should be for us a model, a a perfect model of how to respond. Listen to what Jonathan does in the face of the spirit of God abiding with David and David's success. Verse three, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. Robe symbolized Jonathan's status as heir, his status as the son of the king. He takes that status and gives it to David. And his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt, He takes not only his status, which is conveyed in the robe, he takes his vocation as one who fights on behalf of the people of God um, covenantally, and he gives that to David. So Jonathan looks and sees what is God doing right now in Israel, um, and what God is doing right now in Israel is his spirit has come to dwell with this leader, this king named David. Um, God is blessing everything David sets his hand to. Um, David has gone to war with the enemies of God and been victorious. Um, David is blessed by God. Um, David is, um, we're going to learn this is actually a repeated phrase in this chapter, um, that David is acting wisely. Um, And there's a connection here between the wise actions of David and the blessings of God or the the profitability of all of David's actions. Um, And Jonathan looks and sees rightly, this is what God is doing. And he blesses it by taking everything that he had, in terms of his title, in terms of his vocation, and he gives it to David. He hands it to David. Now, an interesting thing to keep in mind, I really want you to think all the things you're supposed to think about Jonathan here. Um, at this point, Saul is likely in his 70s. Jonathan is likely in his 50s. And David is likely in his early 20s. So, so think for a moment of the humility exhibited by Jonathan in this text. Your dad's getting old. It's likely why, at least one of the reasons why uh, Saul 
didn't step up to fight against Goliath. Um, that's clearly he is Israel's giant. There, there's um, definitely some moral failure going on in 17. But also we, we lose track of the fact that he's an old man. He's in his 70s. And here's Jonathan, a proven leader. God's blessed what he's done. He's in his 50s. And here comes this young buck. I think it's a good phrase for David. Young buck. And, and he hands to him his title. He hands to him his vocation. He binds himself to the good and the success of David in covenant. And he loves him. He has real affection and desire for David's good. He delights in the blessing of David. So the first reaction the text points us to is Jonathan's. And Jonathan is, how can I use my life, my title, my gifts, my strengths to serve, to bless, to delight in, to further the blessing of God on this other person's life. This is how you're called to live. Fathers, when you look at your sons and your daughters, would you be like a Jonathan? How do I bind myself, my title, my wealth, any and all gifts and blessings that I've experienced and have from God, um, including the wisdom that's gained from failures? How do I wield all of that to bless and honor and further what God is doing in my son or my daughter? With a neighbor, maybe with a friend who makes way more money than you do, <laughs> probably works half as much. How do you look at the external blessings of God upon that person and say, how do I wield my title? How do I wield my gifts? How do I wield my wisdom, my age? To bless what God is clearly blessing. So that's Jonathan. I'm going to skip over Saul. Then we have in verse 7, the women. And towards the end of the chapter, we see that the people are delighting in, they're celebrating, and they love David. They're not looking at David's success and envying him. Not looking at David's success and imagining that they could do the same thing, like all the all the the, the dads see the young twenty-something come home, and they're like, "I could have done that." Like they watch a UFC fight, and they see the guy win, and they think, "I could have choked that guy out. I could have punched him. Could have taken that punch." They, they see what David is doing and they cheer for it. They sing and they love David. 
So you look around and you see the success of others. You see the blessing of God upon a family. You see the blessing of God upon a marriage. Maybe you're single and you want to be married. When you see those blessings around you, particularly when it's blessings you don't have, do you love them? Do you celebrate them? Do you cheer for them? Do you make up songs about how great it is? So that's how the people respond. Then you have Saul's daughter, Michael. It says that she saw David and she loved him. And we're going to see in a minute that I think Saul's trying to do something, clearly trying to use his daughter, I think in a, in a couple of different ways to try to trick David. The main thing the text tells us about Michael is she looks at David, she looks at the hand of God on David, she looks at the blessing of God upon David, and she loves him. Young single women in this room, or maybe less young single women in this room. Do you see men as competition? Or do you see the blessing of God upon a man? Do you see the spirit of God attending that man? And is that attractive to you? Do you love that? We should delight where we see the blessing of God and the spirit of God and the wisdom of God at work in other people. We should delight in it. We should, we should expend our own energies to further it, to bless it, and to see it go even beyond where it is. And we should be attracted to it. But that's not Saul's response. A couple of things I want you to notice about Saul's response to what's happening with David. Look at verse 8. It says, and Saul was very angry in this saying. This is the singing of the women. If you can imagine traveling from village to village and a bunch of women come out to sing. Every time you show up in the village and they sing about, yeah, you're pretty great, but this guy's awesome. Um, that could get old. <laughs> well, it got old to Saul. Saul's very angry. This saying, the songs displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David Ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul sees what's happening. There's an important distinction to be made here. He sees what's happening and refuses to acknowledge that God is the one doing it. In other words, he can see the facts on the ground. But he doesn't understand. He's blind to the story he's actually in. We'll come to that in just a minute. So the first thing is he sees the success of David. He sees the the gladness of the people in response to the success of David. Rather than respond with gladness, with love, with blessing, he sees this young 20-something as a threat He's angered by it. Um, But he rightly recognizes, accurately recognizes exactly what's happening. The kingdom is going to David. David is acting wisely. David is prospering in whatever he does. The spirit of God is no longer with Saul, but with David. So Saul is angry. Then, 
there's a couple of different ways in which envy, which is at the root of this, goes after the object of envy. The first is just head on. Saul is raving, as the text tells us. Um, David has gone back from his slingshotting to being a musician, musician. Again, intended to be a blessing to Saul, intended to bring peace, the sense of the spirit of God's presence to Saul's house. David, uh, Saul is there raving, and he has a spear in his hand. Just a quick aside, I like to put some of these in for those who find yourself in certain situations. If you are ministering to, caring for someone who is raving. And I think there's, you know, a lot of different, there's a broad spectrum there of how we could define raving. But you're with someone who's raving, do not let them hold a spear. Okay. So Saul has a spear. David is singing, blessing Saul. And Saul thinks to himself, I can pin this guy to the wall which is a weird thought, unless the music was really bad. Um, but he throws the spear at David. David evades it. The text tells us David evades it twice. Um, we're not exactly sure. Is that like, like moved twice or um, did Saul throw a spear at him? David goes away and things calm down. Then David comes back, starts playing again. And Saul throws another spear at him, um, which it's like, fool me once. Um, you sh- should have figured that out after the first time. Um, so, but the first place that, that, that envy comes after or, or, or seeks to destroy is sometimes just a full frontal assault, just an attack. I want to destroy you, and so I'm going to try to destroy you, which is how Saul goes after him the first time. Second, um, verse 13, start verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So then verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousands. So what does Saul do? Saul is afraid. He can't pin him against the wall with a spear. So he puts him in a position where he's in danger. Kind of uses his political power, takes David from the court where he's playing music, Um, where he's trying to be a blessing to Saul and Saul's family. Puts him instead with troops of thousands. Um, David's not functioning as a general back behind enemy lines. He's leading uh, these these troops into battle with the Philistines, thinking maybe this will get him. Maybe he'll die fighting as a leader of thousands. That doesn't work. So then he tries to offer him his first daughter, David, David is, as the text tells us again and again, he's wise. He just had this man try to throw a spear at him and send him suddenly out to fight battles um, day in and day out. Um, And then tells him, I want to give my elder daughter Merab to you. Give her to you for a wife. Be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Um, Essentially doing what envy almost always does which is envy causes you to hate someone and yet you do everything you can to keep them close. Close enough to kill. 
David, being wise and smart, says, who am I? <laughs> like, I'm, I, can't, I, I, I can't afford a wife like that. Um, I can't be, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm from a house of nobody. Um, I, I don't deserve uh, to be your son-in-law. So time comes, Merib is not married to David. And she's given to someone else. We don't know who this is, but I'm not going to say his name. Yes, I am. Meholathite. Merib goes to Meholathite, which with that name, it's probably good that he was married to a king's daughter. So, um, so we have this situation now where Saul's trying to connive. He's trying to find a way uh, to bring David close. David is smart. He's wise. Um, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm nobody. I don't deserve to be the husband of one of your daughters. Uh, and so Saul gives her to someone else. But then Saul looks around his family and he has a daughter named Michael. Um, and he sees that his daughter, Michael, loves David. She sees what God's doing in David's life, and her response is to love him, to be attracted to him, to desire him, which is the right response to seeing the blessing of God. He hears about this, and it pleases him. Why does it please him? Because he can use Michael to get to David. There's probably two different ways that he perhaps has in mind to get to David through his daughter, Michael. We learn Mike, later um, that Michael has household gods um, in her room. So there's something going on that's not totally religiously in line that's going on with Michael. We also know that when David brings the ark into Jerusalem and is dancing before the Lord, uh, Michael condemns his dancing, calls him essentially a fool, quit acting like an idiot in front of all the people. So there's something going on with Michael. Saul is perceptive enough to know that something in David um, is going to play to that weakness, as is going to be proved out with Bathsheba later in David's life. But the most direct correlation, the reason why um, Saul thinks he can use his daughter Michael to get to David, is he says, I'm going to send him on an impossible mission, I'm going to give him an impossible task. And this impossible task will involve the Philistines and it will get him killed. And so, David, again, responds wisely, says, hey, I don't have any money. I don't have, I am, I'm from nobody's house. I don't deserve um, to be uh, the, the son-in-law of a king. Um, and the servants from Saul go to him and say, look, the only thing Saul needs for you to marry his daughter is 100 foreskins from the Philistines. If any of you men want to marry my daughters, a <laughs> hundred Four skins from the Philistines. There's a handful of stories. There's a lot of stories in the Bible, but um, this is one of my favorite. <laughs> they come to David. David's like, no, I, you know, I, I don't have a bride price to pay for this deal. I, I am from a nobody house. I don't deserve to marry your daughter. Um, and, and, and then he's told, actually, the only thing you need to marry Saul's daughter, it's not just like money, Money um, it would be much easier to come up with. Um, no, what, what you need to do is go kill 100 Philistines and bring me their foreskins. <laughs> to which David responds, great. So just bring a little gold. I can't, there's no, I can't do that. I'm from a poor house. I couldn't bring that about. 
go kill a hundred Philistines and a very intimate part of their body. All of them. David's response to that command is awesome. This is, this is exactly what I wanted to do on a Thursday afternoon. So David goes um, and then I guess is things are going really, really well. So he decides I'm not going to stop at 100. I'm going to double it. Um, and so he gets 200 foreskins, um, which I, never mind. Um, and so he then brings that to Saul. Saul gives him Michael as a wife. Um, and, uh, um, and so we have Michael and David married um, and receiving the blessing of God. Such that Saul, even in sending David to do something that will destroy him, something that's motivated by envy, something that's motivated not by David's good, but to destroy David, um, God is so blessing David, so with David, um, that that even, uh, um, that, that task, that impossible task, prospers in David's hand. And so here the trick intended by Saul to kill David actually results in, in Saul becoming David's father-in-law. So be careful, fathers, if a man comes to marry your daughter and you just give him an impossible task. You'll be thwarted and you'll have a son-in-law you don't like. How do we think about, how do we recognize What's going on with Saul in this text? And and it's important for us to recognize it because there is nothing that should concern us more than the presence and the reality of how envy works its way like a worm into your brain and to your heart and will destroy the work of God in a community and in a family. Let me say that again. There is nothing, there is nothing more destructive to friendship, to a marriage, to a relationship between parents and children, Nothing more destructive to a community like a church than the presence of envy. That if as you look around this room and you take note of Caleb's car. I don't think Caleb has a particularly nice car, but maybe you look at it and you think that's the car I want. And at first it feels like, ah, it's just admiration for a really nice old pickup truck. Not so nice. Maybe admiration for an old pickup truck. (laughs) And then that admiration for an old pickup truck becomes, man, I should look for an old pickup truck. And you find you can't find an old pickup truck as excellent as Caleb's old pickup truck. And you slowly start to think, I mean, why does he get the old pickup truck? I mean, he probably only has an old pickup truck because his dad gave him his old pickup truck um, and he, he didn't deserve it at all. He didn't even find it on Craigslist. He didn't do anything to deserve that old pickup truck. 
And you start thinking, well, why would God give him that old pickup truck and not me an old pickup truck, knowing that I would be so happy with an old pickup truck and he just has this old pickup truck and he drives that old pickup truck like doesn't even care that it's such a glorious gift to him. He doesn't deserve it. And then, and this is where the things usually slip just under the radar. You start getting annoyed with Caleb's shirts. Like, why is Caleb wearing a plaid blue shirt on a Sunday? Arrogant lawyer. Only arrogant lawyers wear blue plaid, pick a, plaid, plaid shirts. Plaid, plaid. <laughs> plaid shirts. He's arrogant. And he has a blue, uh, an old pickup truck. Sweet old pickup truck. Then you start seeing how he... Greets people at the door. Maybe he was talking to somebody else and didn't say hi to you. Look how stuck up Caleb is. He's selfish and arrogant because he wears that blue plaid shirt. And he's ungrateful. He has this incredible old pickup truck. And he won't even talk to me. He's too good for me. Can't say hi to me. What's happening? You're raving. You've been (laughs) driven mad with envy. Hey, and one of the clearest signs that, that, that envy has taken over your whole thought process in such a way that you are pretty close to a raving lunatic is when um, you start describing the, um, the, the character flaws, the, the absolute failings of other people on, on, on irrational bases. You start interpreting all of their actions and all of their possessions and all of their facial expressions and their ways of interacting with people um, totally in terms of um, your um, almost subconscious, uh, subconscious envy of some, some blessing that God has put in their life. And suddenly they can do nothing right. Suddenly you find, yourselves, you find yourself opposing people whom God is blessing, whom God is with, whom God is caring, whose, whose, whose life is marked by wisdom and prospering, and you hate it. And you see the blessing of God, but you're blind to what it means. You think it means he's just lucky or arrogant or prideful. In reality, it's, he's wise and he's humble and he has good eyes like David has. Um, and, and he's dependent on God. He's a man after God's own heart and he's following the Lord and the Lord is blessing him. Nothing will destroy a church community. Nothing will destroy friendships. Nothing will sever a marriage or a relationship between fathers and children's more children more. Looking at other people and saying, "Why don't I have that? Why isn't my life prospering that way?" Look at all that God is giving them. Look, or, or, or usually it doesn't come out that way because then you've just admitted it. Look at all that they have or have taken or have been given and haven't earned. So you see right away a separation between a father and a son, Saul and Jonathan. 
Jonathan blessing the work of God, Saul resisting the work of God. And it will deeply tear apart that relationship. You see, the relationship between a king and his people is the people sing and shout and celebrate the prospering of David. Saul hates it and condemns it and all the songs just make him angry and afraid. You see the separation between a father and his daughter. She sees the blessing of God. She sees the faithfulness of God. Um, She sees what God is doing and she loves it. She's drawn to it. She's attracted to it. And her father just wants to use her to, to try to defeat his own enemies and to protect his role, his vocation, his title as king. There are three kinds of people in this story. Philistines, open enemies to God's words. And we are surrounded by them in our city. Uh, People who disregard God, disregard his words, hate his words, um, ignore his words. And sometimes we can be so focused on um, the obvious sins around us that we don't go to war with the prevailing sin in our own hearts. The sin, the idol of covetousness. And and we become like Saul, the second kind of person you have to deal with in this text. We see the blessing of God. We see the kindness of God. We see every external covenantal blessing at work in someone else's life. And we resent them for it. And we begin to resent God for it. Why don't I have what he has? Why don't I have the life that they have, the esteem that they have? Why don't people sing about me when I come into a town? Um, Why don't I have the truck that he has? Why don't I have the family life that he has? Why don't I have the marriage that it appears he has? We become Saul's rather than becoming like we're supposed to be, Jonathan's and Michael's and even the people. Seeing the blessing of God and everywhere we see it, we bless it. We celebrate it. We rejoice in the kindness of God towards our friends. We rejoice in the goodness of God, um, blessing the the life of our children. We rejoice in the blessing of God um, in in a a fellow um, church member's um, job or in their marriage. Um, We rejoice to see the blessing of God and the care of God for his people. But when you see envy in your own heart, How do you kill it? One of the curious things about the crucifixion of Jesus um, is that Pilate rightly recognizes what's motivating um, the Jewish leader's desire to kill Jesus. And we're told in in Mark 15 and also in Matthew's gospel um, that Pilate knows that the only reason they've dragged Jesus in front of him and are trying to get him killed is because of envy. The book of Acts in chapter four, 
um, uh, in describing um, the, the events that unfold, um, unfolded around the, um, the crucifixion of Jesus, described um, the, um, the, the pervasive work of God, um, actually taking what is in fact um, Satan's greatest weapon um, against the people of God and turning it into his greatest tool, actually using the envy of Pharisees, using the envy of scribes and political leaders, using that envy against them um, to actually bring Jesus to the cross and accomplish his redemptive purpose. You see, it, it comes to terms with recognizing um, the way that you wage war on envy in your own heart um, is recognizing the unassailable providence of God to accomplish all of his purposes. Um, the, the glorious providence of God to give you every good gift that you have, every single one of them. And ultimately to recognize the glorious good work of Jesus on the cross. And how at that cross, God used envy to kill envy. Oh, that we as a people would not become so attuned to the various winds and movements in culture um, that, that are, um, it, it seems like almost a contest in greater and greater degree of rebellion uh, against the, um, the good rule of Jesus and that we would not be so attuned to that that we would not be aware of the thing that will blind you and harden you and make you a raving lunatic. Your own envy. Oh, that we would be a people who go to the cross again and again and again to crucify our covetousness. To crucify our malicious responses to the blessings and the kindness and the wisdom of God in the life of others. Oh, that we would learn to sing about the victory of others. That we'd learn to honor the success of others, that we would learn um, to devote our lives um, to the success and the flourishing of those around us. May we as a people be protected from envy, not because we grit our teeth and become stoics, but because we as a people go to the cross again and again and again to die, to see envy itself crucified on the cross that we might bring life everywhere we go. Let's pray and prepare for communion.